Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. My name is Adam Jezurski, and as always, I am joined by my good friend, Josh Steampot. Hey, how's it going, everyone? And today, we're going to get started straight away. We don't need to discuss what we're talking about today because we've got a very special episode of the podcast for you this week, fortnight, month. Um... We'll see what happens when this comes out. <laughs> the goal is in the next week or two yeah. when we're recording this intro after the fact. Yes. <laughs> we have recently wrapped up our history series, a four-parter looking at the history of paleontology, And uh, the, we wrapped it up with a conversation with the man who in many ways inspired us to put that history together uh, with uh, Dr. John Small from Queen's University. So most people, all, well, most of the people that listen to this podcast regularly will have heard John's name a whole bunch of times. Um, he And even if you don't, even if you don't know his name, you've certainly read his name in paleolimnology yeah, papers for yeah. sure. We, but I'm just, we refer to him a bunch, but in terms of introduction, uh, John received his uh, bachelor's degree uh, from McGill University. Uh, master's uh, from Brock before going to do his PhD at Queen's University, where he's uh, been a member of the faculty there since 1984. Um, John has a long history in paleolimnology. Uh, he is the founder and co-director of the Paleoecological Environmental Assessment and Research Laboratory, or PEARL, at Queen's, which is a group of about 40 or so paleolimnologists. He has a very extensive publication record, like something like over 600 articles, uh, peer-reviewed articles, and uh, and also a very extensive uh, award record as well. And we were particularly interested in talking to John um, because of his standing as an officer of the Order of Canada, a uh, fellow of the Royal Society of London. He's the current president of the Academy of Science of the Royal Society of Canada. He's my boss. Um, and we were really interested in talking about him in terms of what his thoughts were on his long history with paleomology, really specifically in his roles, both as the founding editor of uh, JOPL, the Journal of Paleomology, and as a former president of the International Paleolimnological Association. Yeah, and even though he's Adam's boss, Adam didn't feel uh, he was unable to ask the tough questions of him and he's not my boss anymore so I was perfectly comfortable doing that um, but no we had a, we had a nice little chat it was uh, something that we talked for like half an hour or so uh, in the in the final edit and um, yeah we talked about a bunch of different things what what drew him to paleolimnology and a little bit about the uh, nature of the field sort of when he was first starting out and the changes that he's observed since and because he's worked on some of the things we've talked about a bunch of times like acid rain and climate change now and all of the different things he had a really interesting perspective on sort of how uh, paleolimnology has evolved as a science and and the questions that it's addressed so no it was a good little good little run of questions and his answers all right so here's our conversation now we hope you enjoy it so hi John, and thanks for joining us on our. Oh, my podcast. pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, and uh, yeah, we've just 
wrapped up a series on the history of paleoimmunology, in large part thanks to you because we uh, riffed off one of your slide decks largely for uh, scoping it all out. Um, but we thought it'd be neat to talk to you about the history of paleoimmunology as uh, someone um, that's got some, you know, the perspective of a, of a full career and seen it grow over the last couple decades. Um, and up until now, until we launched Core Ideas, um, if you did a Google search for paleoalumnology podcast, the only thing that would really come up would be you talking to the Queen's radio station about what is paleoalumnology. But we've done 20 plus episodes uh, on that topic now, so it can deep, delve a little deeper into the behind the scenes stuff. But which in total probably have about as many listens as that one episode. So. Oh, <laughs> fractional, <laughs> a fraction. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so just to begin with, like what drew you or how did you, um, end up encountering paleoimmunology in the beginning? Like what was your first well, experience? Well, I, I did my undergraduate degree at McGill University in Montreal and there I took Yap Kalf or now often referred to as Jacob Kalf, but his friends used to call him Yap Kalf, was the professor of limnology at McGill. And uh, he did a an upper year limnology course, which I took just out of sort of interest. I was sort of interested in ecology in general, and I was intrigued by the field. Now, in that course of say thirty six lectures or whatever it would have been, uh, there was maybe about five or ten minutes about lake sediments and just the mention that some people have used lake sediments to reconstruct environmental change. Uh, but um, uh, so it, it really, at that point, we're talking uh, the 1970, late 1970s here, mid to late 1970s, uh, and it was still very a very new field. Well, I wouldn't even say a new field. It just wasn't much of a recognized field at the time. So uh, when I was finishing my bachelor's degree and I was going to start my master's at Brock University in September, there were four months and I thought I'd have to do some work. And uh, I had, they advertised a position to work at the Lake Memphremagog Field Station, which was the McGill research station where a whole bunch of limnologists did some work. And I really enjoyed that. I got the job. I was very happy to have that. And I really enjoyed it. I learned an awful lot about lakes and limnology at the time. But one thing I learned uh, was that how they, um, how, how noisy limnological data were. Of course, I was still a young man. I was 21 years old at the time. Uh, and I could see how, uh, the graduate students were somewhat often frustrated. Like I've got three years of data, but third year was quite different from the second year. The, the noisiness of the data I was becoming very aware of. And uh, I thought, well, that's just limnology. Uh, then I went to Brock and I, I was going to work on phytoplankton ecology, which was one of my interests. In the, uh, and it, I just happened to be in a lab where uh, the professor at the time, Mike Dickman had, uh, had actually a, a very rudimentary sediment core, and he actually was somewhat interested in paleolimnology. He had, he had uh, some old paper, you know, paper. You know, at that point it was all photocopies hanging around, uh, and I started reading, and I got really interested in this. Um, though the field was, you know, very new at the time, or very, uh, uh, so it's still a, it's very basic forms. It was mainly post-glacial, long-term. Very, you know, coarse sampling. What happened during the ice after the ice age, kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, uh, I thought this was a possibility. That, so I tried to read everything I could on the topic, and I decided to switch my topic because they had a, a rudimentary type core that needed some updating. 
And I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at. And so, and I was also interested in environmental issues. So I was interested in the last couple of hundred years. Of course, at that time, things were still very rudimentary. This is pre-Letutin dating, for example. But anyways, that's how I got interested in it. And the idea was, uh, can we sort of look at long-term trends and see what information we can find there? Were they primarily using pollen in at the Brock? Was that his? I don't really know much about what they were doing, but it was a sort of pollen-based those long-term vegetation shifts and certainly at that time we're talking nineteen seventies. There was definitely pollen was king in paleo, and it was again long-term changes. Uh, there was some geochemistry done, wet geochemistry, and there certainly was diatom work done. Um, there was, uh, for example. But again, long term, there was a group in uh, England, Elizabeth Howard in, in the UK, for example. Richard Batterby was already at UCLA, a very, uh, uh, very young lecturer at uh, University College London at the time when I was a graduate student. He was working again on long term changes. Uh, and there were certainly groups everywhere. Uh, there was also some, not, and on, on other things besides diatoms, uh, David Fry. Uh, who was at uh, uh, Bloomington, Indiana, University of Indiana, he is working on fossil cladostria. Now, he never published very many papers on fossil cladostria, but he had already written two review articles, at least that I saw, two review articles on what paleolimnology was doing. So he was one of the first synthesizers of the field. And there were certainly others, uh, Dan Livingston working in Africa. They were quite specialized, you know, working on long-term changes in Africa. Dan Livingston was a duke. There was Ed Devey working, uh, um, you know, working at this point out of Florida. Uh, there was, of course, the group, Herb Wright's group at Limnological Research Center in Minnesota. But again, these were typically long-term changes. Uh, it was also Finnish groups, Scandinavian groups, European groups. But they were, they were sort of these little pockets uh, of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were no journals dedicated to it and, and so on and so forth. So it's still a very nascent field at the time. And the methodology really wasn't, all there. Uh, you know, we were, uh, what was available was radiocarbon dating, and by that we mean bulk radiocarbon dating. So it wasn't, <laughs> you know, we had all sorts of issues with that. Uh, the core, mainly a core was the Livingston type piston core, and that was what you were expected to use. Uh, but there were pockets of new ideas coming here and there, but we're just talking now the late 70s. So uh, things changed very, very quickly, especially in the later 1980s and then and onwards. So one of the things that came up in the history of how things are swirling together, you had a couple of threads in terms of methodology developments, equipment developments, and then dating kind of put things over the edge a little bit. Do you remember when lead 210, because you would have been just, this would have been right around that time. Do you remember when like lead 210 kind of like, did it explode onto the scene? And then all of a sudden, like, what, what was the perspective at that time? So actually, when I worked at Lake Memphis Magog, Bob Flett, who now runs a, a consulting company that works with dating in Winnipeg, uh, was a postdoc at the Lake Memphis Magog station. He was sort of the guy in charge of, of coordinating, you know, student helpers and so on and so forth. And he had a sub-project looking at Lead 210. It was very new at the time. It was just alpha dating at the time. And um, it, it was still being looked at as a possible dating tool. Uh, it started gaining some momentum, but it was always, you know, people criticizing, you know, our new methods come along. Certainly, I knew what led to 10 dating was through my master's. It certainly was way out of my budget. It was not even a possibility. It was very expensive. Very few people would do it. Certainly, by the time I was doing my graduate work, it was becoming more and more. And certainly, by the time near the end of my graduate work, 
where we started doing uh, acid rain work and, and things like that, it was definitely uh, being used uh, uh, in the early acid rain work. People like Steve Norton at the um, uh, uh, University of Maine at Orono, uh, people like Peter Appleby, uh, people like uh, uh, um, Oldfield and Appleby were a combination coming out of Liverpool. Uh, Ed Devey's group with people like Mark Brenner and others, Claire Shelsky uh, in the Florida group were looking at uh, gamma dating. Uh, and was, at that point, it was alpha dating of sediments using light 210. And it was slowly coming on, but it was, uh, it was just, it was out there. <laughs> and it developed and, you know, it really was basically by the late 1980s where it was becoming a, a more standard technique. It's pretty quick, Gary, only a decade of time to go from just something that was kicking around in, uh, in postdoc world through to something that's used everywhere? Well, you know, you really, I really wonder, and I write, I've written this, it, I've said this in my keynotes and in my books, that when, I, when we talk about what, one of the main things we do in my lab is what maybe forensic paleolimnology or the last 200 years, where would we be without lead to 10 dating? I mean, we would not have dating. I'll give, give you a real life example. My master's thesis, one of the first attempts to try and do recent impacts, and it was on, can I, uh, can I determine the effects of highway construction in a park? Uh, there was this Route, route 30 highway going through Algonquin Park, which is a very nice, very nice natural park. But there was a significant road built in the 1930s. It was a dirt road at the time, but it went right through the park. And my feeling was, could I actually see that in the diatom record? If I can see that, you know, if I can't see that, uh, maybe we don't have the sensitivity to do this, but I didn't have light 210. I certainly had no budget for light 210. It was still out there as a possibility. Uh, so here's how I did it. it the, the, the data had two dates or three dates, let's say. I had the date I took the core, that was the top. I did pollen analysis, and one of the dating tools we had was ragweed or ambrosia. Ragweed uh, appears, uh, it's a weed that grows very luxuriantly, as you probably know, uh, uh, when you cut down trees. So we there's a very clear in Ontario, at least, a ragweed increase about, you know, 1850s or thereabouts. So I had like 1850s where I had the ragweed rise. I had the surface, which was when I took my core, which would have been about 1978 or something. When I'm talking late 70s here. And then I had a little white line in my core, which was, we called it the Route 30 line. They built, they really built up a lot of silt and stuff when they built the highway. And I could actually see that line. So I had that line for the highway. I had the surface. I had uh, the bottom, I had three dates basically, and that's how I quote dated the core. I know students look at it and just laugh and laugh, but I, you know, the simple reality is you're, it's an anachronism to think this is how you should do it. If you didn't have anything else, that's all you had. Uh, in fact, my first nature paper on acid rain did not yet have lead to 10 dating. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. That's something that's so interesting to me because like, you know, everything's 2020 in hindsight. And, you know, by the time we arrived on the scene, the lead 210 and the means of getting dates are, are largely taken for granted. And so I'm like kind of wondering, you know, at that time, was it a case of, you know, like it seemed like a slam dunk, like the half-life is the right amount of time. Was it viewed as a slam dunk then? Or is it like, this will work. We have to figure out the details or it's like, we're putting all our eggs in this basket. And if this doesn't work, we don't know if we'll be able to get like dates over the last hundred years or were there, you know, was there a bit of a race where other isotopes being investigated? I don't I know this is like outside of um, your, your expertise, but just in terms of the feel at the time of like 
pushing it over the edge. Frank Goldfield had an article once on possible dating techniques, and he, he mentions let you, you know, he was a leader in let you ten dating, and somewhere along the way, mentions let you ten so that as an aside, like one sentence, as I, I'm going by memory here, but there were a whole lot of other isotopes they were thinking that might work, uh, which didn't really pan out. Uh, so, um, uh, so, it, it, but it, I think, you know, like most new methods, there were people criticizing it. I remember there was one, one conference talk saying, let you 10 will move in acid sediments. It can't be used in acid lakes, but that was later shown not to be the case. I mean, you know, sometimes you didn't get good let you 10 profiles. Didn't mean it was because of the conditions. Uh, very quickly though, it looked like it was working pretty well because we'd have ways of maybe anchoring dates. Like someone, we know a forest fire happened in 1945 and the date is 1945 and led to 10 and there's charcoal, for example. Uh, I'd have like a, you know, Route 30 highway white line and that would match a led to 10 date for that time. The ragweed rise. Uh, people also were looking at cesium-137. Um, this was going to start it off mainly in England. Uh, uh, some of the early work was done by uh, Winifred Pennington. Uh, uh, sometimes referred to as Mrs. Tooten. She often used both her husband's name and, and her uh, maiden name. But uh, she was working in the Freshwater Biological Association. She published some of the very early work on cesium-137, uh, which, of course, is more like an episodic marker. But uh, so, they, you know, chronology is, is a key. I mean, if we're going to pinpoint this industry caused this problem, we've got to know if we're in the 1930s or in the 1980s. And so that was a major step forward. But it's an example of the methods we just use in paleolimnology. Every method we use, there was this agonizing, you know, development of these methods. And I'm even going down to the simple ways how we prepare slides and stuff. I, I sometimes sit in, my, in our lab and I watch students, you know, making slides. And I sometimes, I mean, I don't say it, but I sometimes watching them make the slides and I'm like, they wonder how agony went into the different ways I tried you know, different combinations of how do I actually get them onto the, you know, onto the slide, uh, the different combinations of acids, the how to take sediment cores, the what was available at 1970s, 1980s, how that changed, how section cores, you know, I show that in my history of paleolimnology slides, how I section cores in the late 1970s. Is it's it not, not that different from like the glue sectioner, but it was, I had them uh, onto a bookcase uh, locked in because that's the only way I had these, these, uh, uh, these sort of uh, metal bookcases that had these holes in it where you put screws. And that's where I would put ways to hold the core with the sediment in it in a sturdy manner because it was a bookcase because it was sturdy. I used a car jack to pump it from the bottom uh, to get it out from the top. I'd use a, uh, at this point, ashtrays were everywhere. And most universities had disposable, heavy tin foil ashtrays. And I found that was a very good cutting tool. Uh, you know, so I would cut that. I, I mean, it, things were a little more complicated. And you, you, you built it, everything was kind of from scratch. You know, you, did, you looked around a lab, which really wasn't very well supplied. So you end up using ashtrays and you end up using your car jack. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, was a, it was a very different world than, you know, uh, sending in a purchase order and getting all the equipment arriving next day via, you know, FedEx. So it was a very different world. Uh, and, you know, all the methodology had to be developed um, and, and modified over the years. So it's, it's, it is quite different. It's kind of like fieldwork in the north and sometimes when you forget something and it's not there and you just have to dig around Canadian Tire until you find something that does approximately the job and like, no, that'll do. Yeah, I think for your uh, listeners, when you say Canadian Tire in the Arctic, what we mean is the local garbage dump. <laughs> uh, Canadian Tire is a, is a term we often use in the high Arctic. 
uh, when you had a community where there is no or are no Canadian tires. And so the best uh, uh, the best we can actually use uh, the hardware store, if you like, is uh, the dump where you walk around and look at old abandoned uh, pieces of equipment that have been dumped, whether it be a parts of a furnace, let's say, or part electrical unit, or you need screws. So I have to go to Canadian Tire, which means you go to the local dump and try and find the screw you need, because <laughs> that's the closest thing we get to a Canadian Tire in many hamlets uh, or it, where we're isolated. Um, yeah, and in the same vein, because again, you know, a professor became a professor in, in uh, the early 1980s. Um, when did you first get a personal computer? Uh, so when I was made a, pro- I was a professor in 19 September 1984 is when I got my professorship. And uh, you know, people will be horrified now. People get startup packages of a hundred thousand dollars or something. My startup package, I think, was three thousand five hundred dollars or something, and that's what a computer cost at the time. And it. If you, you, you know, this is WordStar 2.1 kind of thing or 2.0. Uh, it was just that one floppy drive kind of thing. Um, and so pretty well, my whole startup went to buy a computer, quote, quote, computer. I mean, we just laugh at it now. So uh, that, that, that is when I got it. It was one for the lab, and it was mainly used as a text editor, though there were some, you know, some statistical programs. And, and other than that, it was just a, a fancy typewriter too, and a place to play video games. I found out with my graduate students, but but, but that would all be on a, fl- a literal floppy. You know, they were floppy at the time. You could actually move them around. Uh, the original floppy disks. So that was my startup. Was a Zenith computer. It was a Zenith computer, and they were quite common at the time. Which grad student was the one who was primarily into the video games? I can't tell you. The famous scientist right now. Yes, (laughs) some of those all those first students did very well. All my students have done very well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's interesting because uh, I didn't. I I would have assumed that the the draw for the computer at the beginning would have been the statistical software more so than the 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 word processing. Well, you might say that now. Uh, Have you ever typed a thesis on a typewriter? I have not, not a thesis, so, no. Uh, so if you have a typo, you retype the page. Uh, so when someone makes a revision, you start from page one and you retype the entire thing over again. Uh, for, uh, so trust me, <laughs> people have, no, have lost concept what a typewriter was. Uh, and you, to make a copy, you know, you'd have like carbon copies or you pay a fortune for the photocopies. But uh, you, if you made an error, you might try white out, you paint it out and try and retype over it. But uh, you would be typing and retyping and retyping just now how we do drafts. Each one was typing typically from page one to page 47 or whatever it was. Did the computer have a printer with it? or A dot matrix. All we had was dot matrix yeah. at the time. This is pre-laser printer. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was a dot matrix. I made all this noise. It would take forever to uh, type. And the programs were very, very, uh, I mean, they were very primitive at the time. Even the fancy ones were primitive. There were things you'd have all these control to underline something. It'd be like Control K R or something, a whole combination. And to end underlining, it'd be another Control K R. If you missed one Control K R, the entire document would come up. For example, underlined. Um, so anyway, uh, but but no, I think most people saw a computer as a let's call it a text editor or a fancy typewriter. I can assure you that was it. And remember, they had very little power. Those early computers. Uh, we would do like um, uh, a DCA or something. Uh, 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 it, we would plug it in at night with a small data set. 
it just one small statistical analysis, we'd come the next morning and it would still be running. Whereas now it's instantaneous. I mean, you know, this was a different world. So, uh, and of course, and frankly, at that time, paleolimnology wasn't all that numerical either. Uh, the, the, we had like indexes for acid rain, like the alpha index, you know, the, the Nygaard indexes or Marilainen's work. And that was like to get your diatoms, put this one as a, in these different categories, divide by seven or whatever, and out came a predicted pH. So that really came with the acid rain where the uh, numerical people especially saw these nice data sets. And they got interested for numerical or statistical reasons in these high quality data sets we could produce. And that's where that merger happened. Okay, that's cool. No, I, I learned something already because that's kind of just changed my perception a little bit. Um, and you know, then leading into acid rain, and then think of it being a pretty politically charged question at the time. Um, was it was it as polarized as it is today with like climate change per se? Was it that intense? It was polarized, but it was a much simpler problem. We didn't think it was a simple problem. Now I look back, it was the simplest problem we've had, you know, but, but it was definitely polarized. It was very, very similar. I've written an article, Lessons Learned from Acid Rain, and it's, it's very, very similar. Uh, it was one of the first times that scientists were, um, uh, were uh, brought into, say, the, the media sphere in such a way with environmental issues. There was some like eutrophication earlier on, but acid rain was uh, more a local issue, or there was some international issues there, but acid rain was a real international issue. It was a transboundary issue. Uh, the, you know, the atmosphere doesn't have a passport, and people polluting in one area were getting the financial gains of that pollution, but the pollution was going somewhere else and falling down where people weren't gaining, and it was, a, you know, it was really becoming a political and an international problem, and polarized. A very similar questions posed uh, you know, and the the things were uh, have lakes acidified? If so, when? By how much? And who? What's the cause? Uh, it was quite straightforward. You can go and show lakes are acid. All you do now is take the pH and you can say, yeah, lakes in the Adirondacks are acid. Lakes in Algonquin Park are acid. Lakes in Sudbury are acid. That no one could deny the current state. <laughs> uh, what was denied is what caused it. Are they naturally acid? And many industries that were the fingers pointing are causing the acid rain we're arguing that the lakes were naturally acid. And so how do you do that? Well, uh, Sorensen only invented pH in 1909, and no one was taking the pH of the lakes in the 1800s. It wasn't even a pH function, let alone taking pH in the 1940s or anything. Uh, and so you had to show that the lakes were not naturally acid. That was a key cause. And so the way you could do that is with paleolimnology and diatoms. Uh, and that's where that whole field developed, and with chrysophytes and other indicators and uh, and so paleomology really became, uh, you know, into headlines, li uh, literally into headlines uh, at that time. Uh, it was a baptism of fire for someone. I was a young man at the time uh, of getting into the media and into controversial media with people who did not want to hear what you were saying and did not believe what you were saying or said they did not believe what you were saying. So uh, it really was a baptism of fire at the time. And uh, that's when... And, and it was kind of practice for now. Uh, it's the same arguments, you know, what I just said about acid rain. Doesn't that sound familiar with global warming? Uh, you know, uh, is the earth warming? If so, when, by how much, who's the cause? Uh, and of course, global warming is a far, far more serious problem and a far more international and global problem. So it's much harder one to deal with. Yeah, and complicated. Just, you know, oh, but the sea level's not rising here. 
Yeah, right. Well, it's acid rain too. Why are not these lakes not acid? Yeah. Well, because they're they're because of geology and a whole bunch of. And there were a few naturally acid lakes too, which complicate the mix. Uh, but for good reasons, we understood why, and we could show that with paleo, they were naturally acid, and why they were so. And one of the things we were talking about as we went through this was the the Journal of Paleolimnology. And when we first started, we were trying to figure out kind of when paleolimnology as a discipline came together. And you know, it's obviously you have to have a science before you can have a journal. And we thought, you know, we didn't have a lot of information about the the beginning of the journal when it first was put together, but you were, you were there. I mean, it was, was you, right? Um, so were any of the acid rain papers published in JOPL or did the journal come after it sort of solidified there? I, I mean, the early ones, like the Perla papers. And yeah, some, the early Perla papers, especially in uh, volume three. I mean, I was there at, uh, as the first editor. It's a pretty young guy, but um, the history, yes, uh, it was definitely co-releasing enough that Springer, well, Springer's gone through various name changes, but it's what is Springer now, um, or Springer Nature now, or Nature, yeah, Springer Nature, they changed names, but it was Springer, the same people in, in the Netherlands, but primarily in the Netherlands. And yes, it, it moved, uh, it, Acid Rain was one of the things that I think pushed the, the group together. Uh, many of the early papers were published in the Journal of Paleomology. And I think that was a, I, I felt very strongly as the founding editor that it was a way to coalesce the science uh, synthetic science, but to give it some um, some bonding uh, and, and and so on and so forth. So uh, I think that was you know we were certainly coming together as a as a recognized discipline. Um, we had already international meetings; they were fairly you know di different areas and different years apart. But at least once you get a journal, sort of it actually sort of synthesizes the field into one area, gives you the opportunity of. Of, of looking and you know putting methodology that's very relevant to your field there to putting review articles very relevant to your field uh, and, and not to exclude paleomology for other journals that was never the goal as i wrote in the opening editorial it's to bring the science together so how does that actually happen like starting a journal like who pitches who did you go to springer did a group go to springer did someone come to you? like how does that even work so uh, I had done a book, uh, Diatoms and Lake Acidity, with the publisher. It was an edited book. It came out in 1980s, in mid-1980s. I was in my 20s. I know, yeah. Uh, and and uh, well, maybe early 30s at that stage. <laughs> no, it my, my, I was in my 20s, I guess. Wow, going back in time now. Anyway, it was called <laughs> Diatoms and Lake Acidity. You write about, let's say, 20 chapters of you know, trying to synthesize how different areas have used diatoms and Christ to some extent to reconstruct acid rain and I guess that book did pretty well uh, uh, and they the person who was who the, the editor not the editor but the publisher I was working with uh, out of the blue phones me uh, and says uh, we have we have already made the decision we're making the decision to start a new journal journal of paleolimnology uh, and uh, we'd like to ask you to be editor uh, and I said, what? I was just like, I was totally stunned. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I thought about it. Uh, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was basically just starting my career in, in some ways, you know, at that time. Well, I'm not starting, but I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I was, I was 30 years old uh, uh, when the phone call came. So uh, I thought about it for a while, I'll talk to a few people. And I thought, yeah. Uh, I had no idea how much work I was getting into. The publishing, editing was a very different world then. Uh, but uh, yeah, 
and uh, you know, 1988. That was 19. You know, by the time the first uh, uh, the first edition, you know, it takes about a year or so to get the papers. I think it was 1988. I guess the first uh, first papers came out, and uh, yeah, that's where it is now. And so then, would there be a similar flow for the deeper series in terms of getting the standard? methods all in one place and yeah the deeper yeah yeah so the developments in paleo environmental research which i'm the series editors of and originally was between bill Ast and i but now i'm the series editor uh it, it again sort of started a bit like that we decided uh that we needed uh to standardize the method methodology uh and there was a um, uh bjorn berglund had a book from 1986 that uh, this big orange book that so many of us still have on our desk uh, was sort of a, it was a methodology for paleo environmental sciences. You know, there's a chapter on pollen, chapter on diatoms and so on and so forth. But it was actually, things had quite changed since the 1980, you know, the, the book, the date on is 1986, but a lot of it was, you know, it takes a while to get a book out. It was actually sort of missed some of that, that those, some of the, many of the new methodologies that were coming out. And so, um, by the time it was 2000, 2001, you know, it was time to, you know, there was a lot of new methodologies. It ended up being four volume series of methodologies trying to bring it together. So we have, you know, pull it down and this is how you do, here's a typical techniques for Clodosia, for chronomids, for particle size analysis, for tephras, the list one. We ended up filling four volumes. Uh, and that went, and then uh, that did quite <laughs> went well. So, you know, uh, it, they, they wanted to make it a they, while it was going, they said, let's make this a book series. And that's so now it's a book series. And there've been other methods, like there's been one on a very large book by uh, John Burks was the lead editor on uh, numerical techniques. There's, well, there's one on ice cores. There's one on dendrochronology. They're everywhere. Uh, so again, I was, again, a further coalescing of the science, if you like. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of what, you know, if you want a science, you need, uh, yeah, you don't need, but, you know, if you want to, be, be a designated science, having a dedicated journal, having a dedicated book series, having standard methodologies, having international symposia with an international society behind it. Uh, I think it's pretty clear it's a pretty mature science and a pretty mature journal as well, the Journal of Paleoenology. So uh, that's a lot. Ha it's all happened since the 1980s. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, that, that part of the, of the process. So. Yeah. Which for you seems long away. For me, I'm going, <laughs> it doesn't seem so long ago. Um, yeah. So out, out of all those things, you know, you know, what are the, I mean, I guess so much has changed since you first heard the term paleontology for the first, first time. Um, but what, does anything really stand out as like the biggest changes or is it just everything has changed so much that it's almost unrecognizable? I think, well, I think the respect the field has has changed. I can tell you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, if I, I can tell you that, you know, what I spent, and I'm not just me, the, the fewer earlier paleomology seems to spend almost their entire time defending the field that it works. Uh, and, you know, and I, I understand that. First of all, scientists are supposed to be critical. Secondly, if I told someone without knowing what's going on, that I go in the middle of the lake and I put a tube in the middle of the lake, and from that tube, I'm going to look at stuff that died before. And I'm going to tell you how acid rain changed. <laughs> I think they were nuts. It sounds like I can think of a thousand reasons why it shouldn't work. And I can still think of a thousand reasons why it shouldn't work. However, 
there's a million reasons why it does work as opposed to a thousand reasons that shouldn't work. And so it works, you know, I, I mean, it's not perfect, but nothing is perfect. Um, so I think that's the analogy is there's so many more things making it work as opposed to things that you can, well, what about mixing? What about, yeah, well, you know, in some places we'd have a mixing issue, some places we have a diagenesis issue. The simple reality is that in the vast, vast majority of examples, it works remarkably well, uh, despite potential shortcomings. And that's not to say the other fields don't have shortcomings. You know, I get, uh, oh, you take one core and you give the whole history of the lake. And I say, well, yeah, I'm also a limnologist, not just a paleomologist, but it seems most of the limnology, you go take one water sample in the middle of the lake and that you say what the phosphorus concentration is. <laughs> you know, I mean, and it works. I'm not criticizing, but I'm not sure anything's that much different. We have, I think we have pretty, even a better case where the sediments are integrating throughout the entire water column, through the entire horizontal bases of the lake and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, I think, the, and, and we've checked variability repeatedly in, in at least simple lake bases. So, you know, I can think of hundreds of reasons why it shouldn't work, but the simple reality, it works and it works very well. And it has gotten credibility. It's used in policy implications. You know, politicians certainly invite me and many other uh, paleontologists to cons not consult, but uh, yeah, I guess consult in ideas of how to set policy. Uh, I think both of you know how busy I am dealing with that side of things. Uh, and I'm, I think that's important. I do it all the time because the reason we do the science is that someone uses it. If, uh, if no one, if no one doesn't want to use it, it's probably not doing it. You know, it wouldn't be that maybe perhaps not that important. Yeah. Okay, and I'm following through on that in terms of um, impacting policy. Um, like now as, um, you know, uh, the current president of um, the Royal Society of, the Academy of Science within the Royal Society of Canada, and you are meeting with politicians and consulting, you know, what is that? I guess not just what is that like, but also what can you say to people like, how, how can, do you have any, I guess, suggestions or advice to anyone that might be listening uh, of how to break out of the ivory tower a little bit and help, you know, how do you get your science to actually change the world, I guess, would be uh, in a big, big picture way? Well, I think the first step of a professional scientist is to get their work out to the other to the other scientists in professional journals and stuff. I mean, I don't want to, uh, if it's not published, it doesn't exist. So you can't use, the, you know, if it's not published in peer review, the science isn't going to be used, at least not by used by credible people. So that part's certainly important, but you need to carve out the, I feel you need to carve out the time to do public outreach and to try and get your, uh, whoever wants to be, whoever is interested in what you're doing, get the information out there. And uh, so, uh, uh, so I, I, you know, that, that includes, uh, talking to, like we're limnologists, so talking to local lake groups. Uh, since, uh, since August, I've given three keynotes at local lake management societies, you know, the, uh, different Rito lake groups and so on and so forth. And that's just to the users, the cottage, primarily cottagers or, you know, anglers who want to know about their lake. And I talk about their lake and stuff. So that's, that's one way. I know something about their lake. I found out what their lake was like. Yes. Algal blooms are increasing in your lake. Here's probably why. That's at one level, sort of the local level. But then moving on up throughout the decision-making tree, uh, you know, try and also address, uh, do your best things like this, this podcast, or try to do anything you can to get the information out to the non-specialists. And, uh, uh, and if, you know, if you are asked to speak at a school, like I go everywhere from kindergarten onwards, uh, do it. And so people know what you're doing. And, uh, uh, 
and, and put it in a way that's meaningful to them. There's a scientific publication, but there's also more a public release kind of publication or, or a podcast or web pages. We run web pages on all our major projects, and those are used by schools. You know, we, we always get questions from, you know, high school students. I'm doing a project on this, and I saw your web page. Can I talk to you? So it goes from that level onwards to the, you know, to the prime minister, basically, <laughs> or the president of your country. So, uh, so I, I think, and, and the onus is on us to do it. Uh, we've done a pretty poor job of it up until recently. It's getting better, but university is getting better too. When I was a young professor, I was kind of alone. Uh, you know, I didn't have support from the university and going out media. The media were phoning me. I didn't, you know. Now, well, universities have communications offices, media offices. You know, their, their goal is to get their professors and their students, staff out to the media because they've, I think they've realized hmm, there's something good to this. You know, we get publicity, we get relevancy and so on and so forth. So uh, now it's a little bit easier. Like they, co they come in this direction. Uh, and that's what happened with the acid rain. I never, I never phoned a, a journalist in my life. They'd be phoning, you know, and it would be sometimes harrowing like uh you know because it was a contentious issue and i get phone calls in my office as a young professor and say uh uh you know uh, we have on the line someone else already who doesn't believe in this and uh we were told that you might have the opposite view uh, you're talking to some producer we're going live in 10 seconds uh, are you going to stay on the line <laughs> and then we're going live in five say five four three, and on the line we have john <laughs> and you know i mean that, some of it was ambush uh stuff and you know, but you know, you stay on the line. Uh, you didn't you said no. I don't want to talk. But it's a very hard. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you wonder should you talk. Uh, I've had this with climate change. I've said I've had it with the debates. You know, the fact that we're having quote these debates on climate change in media, and I, and the, a lot of the media agree with me now. It says I did a lot of that, as you as you both know. But uh, the fact that we're debating says there's a debate. <laughs> it's not a debate. You know, and you you know. It, Let's talk, you know, there was a time, but, you know, there's a dangerous trend, as I just did in an editorial. Uh, there was a time when people spent 30, 35 years studying a topic were experts, and in, with some some areas now, they're elites, and that's a very dangerous trend, too, which we have to fight. But uh, I think we have to give comprehensive, accessible answers to direct questions, and uh, we shouldn't be scared of doing that. We should do it. And we have a responsibility to do it. If nothing else, by and large, most of the work we do is funded by taxpayers' money anyway. So at least give it back to the people who paid for it. Uh, thanks, John. I uh, really appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing your time with us today and uh, providing some new insights into, you know, paleolimnology and uh, what it was like to be there, at, you know, as it was evolving through many, many steps. Um, and it's been really interesting and, uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Perfect. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get you on and on again. I mean, he sits on his computer and looks at zoom probably 24 hours a day at the moment. Uh, maybe, maybe next time, God willing, we'll be able to do this live in, uh, in Kingston. I'll come down and bring the recording gear and we'll do this sitting around the table as opposed to, uh, at the computer, but no, thanks again. Great. Thanks. <music> So there we go. That was a discussion with uh, Professor John Small from Queen's University, uh, world-renowned paleolimnologist. There's no doubt about that. And uh, yeah, had some really interesting insights on a, a bunch of different topics, and uh, including, I think, a, a lot of um, kind of cool points related to the policy implications and the linkage between science and policy. And, and I guess that stuff that he's, he's really 
working quite heavily on sort of at the moment. Yeah. And it's interesting in that, you know, a lot of the stuff I've picked up over the years in conversations with them before, but one thing that kind of was a little bit of a curveball with me is just wrapping my head around the whole uh, personal computer being the draw being purely uh, a initially a word processing tool more so than a statistical tool, I guess, you know, how much your perspective changes uh, or, you know, the whole where you stand depends on where you sit kind of, kind of idea. Yeah. Maybe not that different, I guess. Uh, what do you do most of the time you're at the computer now type? And so, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we did four episodes on history interview with John as an epilogue. And, um, I think it's time to check the mailbag. Sounds like a plan. There's nothing in the mailbag. Uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe that I had, I had a hunch that might be the case. <laughs> well, I think maybe this history, um, of getting back to our roots, um, we're definitely open to any questions or feedback from anyone. If there's anything, any omissions that you think or call us out on it, that'd be great. Uh, you can either co- uh, send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com or contact us directly on Twitter where our handle is Core Ideas Paleo. And until the next time, uh, thank you for listening to Core Ideas. Um, if you want to check out past episodes or uh, blog posts on almost all the episodes, I'm almost caught up. Um, check out ajazorski.ca slash core ideas. Oh my goodness, I, blo- I totally fluffed that. that <laughs> Isn't it core ideas slash podcast? Oh, crap. Go to the, go to the Twitter page. <laughs> you'll, you'll, find, uh, you'll find a link to it right there. Yeah. Coreideas.ajazorski.ca. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we know we know he can search for something on the internet quickly. At least that's that's on the tubes. And he does some good blog posts on the actual material. So wherever they are, they're thorough. A lot of good information there. Well worth your time. And if nothing else, since Adam's still laughing slash uh, burying his head into his desk, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode with John. And uh, if you have any ideas for other guests, let us know. And if not, we'll catch you next time. Bye.